And as we continue a series on uh, the mission, and I just had one thing I forgot to mention to you last week and uh, to bring to your attention before we dive into our text. We've got, as you can see, um, a great opportunity to uh, feed this morning on the Lord uh, through communion. So there's a book that was put out, and I don't know how long ago it was. Um, I could look in there at the copyright date, but then I have my glasses on. But it's entitled, What is the Mission of the Church? And it's Kevin DeYoung. And Greg Gilbert are the authors of that. I would highly um, uh, commend it to you, and I say it is a tremendous resource, very, very helpful. They spend um, a great deal of time going into much greater explanation what we're trying to do here um, uh, in this series. And so, and of course, they stole everything from us. They got all their information from us. I get so sick of hearing authors on the phone. David, please give me some counsel. So I think you'll find it to be very helpful in the process. Now, we are in a series. That series is on the mission. And what is the mission of the church? If we're going to understand the mission of the church, then we must first understand what is the mission of Jesus. Because we are Christians, meaning we are little Christ. We are called to function in the same kind of way that Jesus did. And we said this last week. There's no way we could do everything that Jesus did. I cannot save anyone from their sins. I can't save myself from my sins. Therefore, I can't save anyone else. So in that sense, Jesus stands alone in the solitude of himself. But in another sense, we are called to mimic what it is that Jesus does as it pertains to getting the message about Jesus into the hands of the world. And so... We started out that series, Todd kicked us off in a great way, talking about the fame of God. We said it's really like two legs that are walking. The first leg is the fame of God. This is the driving motivation force in all of life. And what do we mean by the fame of God? God receives the greatest amount of fame when his children have the greatest amount of satisfaction in him. And so we seek the fame of God first and foremost. But the second leg over there, the left leg, is the other leg that helps keep us balanced. It's also we seek the freedom of man. And so we're seeking that God would be honored and glorified. And the greatest way God is honored and glorified when his children are satisfied in him and when more and more people become satisfied in him, when their joy is placed in him, when they understand what it's like to have a relationship with him, that's when they are freed. So it is the fame of God. It is the freedom of man that we are seeking. That's the umbrella, if you will. That is, in many ways, the mission now we're talking about for the rest of the series, what does it look like to do both, to pursue both of those things? And today we come to a passage that is familiar to most who have grown up in a church. If you have not grown up in a church, I'm glad you're here this morning. Glad you get to hear one of the most famous stories in all of the New Testament, especially for those that grew up in what was called Sunday school or vacation Bible school. Now, do you remember the little flannel graph? One of the greatest inventions in, in ever in history and I, I can still remember this particular story. It's a story about Jesus and a man named Zacchaeus. And they put Jesus up here. Now, Jesus in all of my flannel graph that I got to see growing up as a kid had the same expression on every face. So it was like Prozac Jesus. There's nothing that was there. And then you had Zacchaeus. Jesus is like this big. Zacchaeus was like this. And I don't know why that sticks out in my mind more than any other story. But that one does. Zacchaeus in Luke chapter 19 is where we'll go. But before we get there, I don't think this will be, take much convincing um, uh, for you. 
is, uh, would you not think this be true, that most of the religious in the world, most religions, period, in the world, operate on a system where far too often the religious are looking down. You've got the religious leaders who are looking down on those within the religion and trying to tell them, keep going, keep getting yourself up, rise up a little more, work a little harder, do a little more, sacrifice a little more. Religious leaders look down on their people. They also look down when it comes to the rest of the world. Because it's just about our religion. It's just about what we do. There's this separatist mentality. And so walking down the road, it's, it's looking down. Jesus shared a story one time about this Samaritan, this deeply despised Samaritan. Walking down the road and there's this person that really needed some help had gotten beaten up along the way. And you had religious leaders. And what does that religious, what do those religious, uh, religious leaders do? Jesus tells us they see them and they step over to the other side of the road and keep moving. The religious look down, look down in condescension at others, always trying to size up some sort of a pecking order as to who's the most important, who's the best, who's the greatest, who sacrifices the most, who has the most piety, etc. Jesus, on the other hand, looks up. Jesus' eyes go up. What do the scriptures tell us about the eyes of the Lord? They go to and fro, looking all throughout the earth, looking to see whose hearts are fully devoted over to him, looking to see those who need his support, another passage tells us, how he might uphold them. And when Jesus spent time here on the earth, walking the earth, his eyes were up. He was sending a message to those that were downtrodden. When they were down, his message was one of grace and mercy. It is, I can do something for you that you can't do for yourself. He was constantly lifting up others. His eyes also went up, looking up to his father constantly. Where would you have me go? Who else can I meet? Who else can I serve? Jesus looked up. He looked around at the world. He didn't spend the same amount of time that religious leaders did looking down and looking within this body itself. He was looking up and he was looking out. Can I ask you, what does your, your vision do? Where do your eyes typically go? The prevailing mindset of the day in which Jesus was walking the earth amongst the Jewish, those in the Jewish faith, the religion of Yahweh, they were trying to do the best that they could to keep themselves separate from those sinners. And sometimes with a very good motive in mind, meaning I want to remain pure. I want to do everything that I can. However, from start to finish, they just seemed to have it off. It really wasn't about what God could do for them on their behalf. It was really about what they could do for God. Where do your eyes go? Do your eyes go like most of ours do? Where they really go internally. When I tend to look up, I tend to be looking at a mirror. And my thoughts go to my behavior and my performance and what it is that I am doing and I'm not doing and what I should be doing and what I have given and what I haven't given and how could I give more and what will other people be thinking about my lack of desire, et cetera. My, my vision oftentimes starts and stops with me. 
It gets so internal. And you know this, the more you focus, more I focus on myself, the more we focus on ourselves, the more depressed we are going to be. Because I will never, ever perform well enough to be satisfied. So I would suggest this morning we follow the pattern of Jesus and that we would set our gaze up. We would look at the author and finisher of our faith and it would also look out at others. If you are physically able, would you stand in honor of the reading of God's word? It'll be Luke chapter 19, and we'll read just 10 verses, verses 1 through 10. He, meaning Jesus, entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. And he was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. You may be seated. Now, every now and then I come up with a really good insight, something like this. Luke 19 takes place after Luke 18. I know you're dumbfounded at this moment. That's just my sheer brilliance that I have. Now, what happens in Luke 18 is the story of a rich young ruler. And the rich young ruler approaches Jesus and he says, Hey, Jesus, what do I got to do so that I can be saved. You said, it's really, really simple. Just be perfect. And, and the guy doesn't really understand what Jesus is saying. I'm summarizing this. And so Jesus says, you know, just, just do the law. I've done it all. I, I, I'm good there. All right. Uh, give away everything you have. The religious... Look down and walk away. Because he can't do it. Now, what happens after that rich young ruler, though? There's another story. Jesus predicts his death, but then right after that, there's a story of a blind man who is outside of Jericho. Now, Jesus is on his way in there, and outside of Jericho, there's this blind man. And we know from another account, this man's name is Bartimaeus. He is son of Timaeus. And this guy does everything he can to get the attention of Jesus. He begins to shout and scream. And the crowds around say, shh, dude, you look really, really desperate when you cry out to God. Do you know how pathetic this seems? And furthermore, we don't want you to disturb the stud. Like this is our spiritual stud. This is the guy that we listen to, we want to be like, et cetera, so Man, don't distract this guy. Jesus calls him over. 
Because Jesus' eyes are up. He's looking out. How, how can he serve? What can he do? This blind man. Everybody thought this man who could not see but looked really, really pathetic in the process. Everybody thought he was the one who was in the wrong. Those who had the sight thought they could see with clarity were the ones who couldn't see at all. Then comes Luke 19. And Luke sets the story up and he lets us know that now Jesus enters into Jericho. Now, what do you think of when you think of uh, Jericho? The first thing that probably comes to mind is Joshua and the battle of Jericho. And where there's this war that takes place, Joshua's to go in, he's to be conquering the land. So they've come out of the land of Egypt, out of slavery, and so now they're to be overtake, physically overtaking, um, um, uh, uh, getting the land that God had promised to Abraham. And so they're to carry it out. And so you remember how that battle took place. It was their might. It was their military strength. It was their sheer genius. It was their courage. It was all of this that overtook the land, wasn't it? That was a bunch of people that didn't know what they were doing because they didn't have a whole lot of training while they were slaves over here. Bring them out and God says, here's what I want you to do. Put the worshipers in front, send the ark out the way and march around the city seven times. At the end of that seven times, I want you to, 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 to just shout and scream. And as the worshipers lead the way, trust me that I'm gonna do it. And if you haven't yet seen it, you ought to be thinking right now about the veggie tales for Joshua and the Battle of Jericho. So they're marching and they shout and then lo and behold, the walls fall down. Now this is an important thing. Please remember this. The walls, and the scripture tells us that the walls fell out. So not into the city, but that they fell out. That story has been debated for years and years and years and years. Earlier, last century, we finally found finally found this land that is Jericho. It's got the markings and archaeologists and et cetera. And archaeologists were a little bit confused as they were looking at these walls because the walls they found were not falling in on the city. They had evidence that the walls had fallen out. And they're just like the scriptures had said. So the story that once was attacked heavily by the skeptics all of a sudden now receives no attention. So this battle that takes place in Jericho, but remember what happened. What happened? For, spies get sent out and they go into a hostile place. There's opposition to the kingdom of God that is there. And then there is an individual notorious sinner in that midst. That individual notorious sinner had the name of Rahab in Joshua. And this one sinner seems to have in places of faith in the God of the Bible. And the salvation comes that takes place in the home of this individual notorious sinner. Sound familiar? The other thing that comes to my mind when I think about Jericho also is I think about a prophet. A prophet who was given a mission. The setting is, is uh, here that he gives to us, that there is, he enters into Jericho, and behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. And Zacchaeus, it says, was a chief tax collector, and it points out that he was pretty doggone rich. Now, Zacchaeus, this gives us the Greek name here. In Hebrew, that name actually means, do you know? Innocent or pure. 
So the name that was given to him by birth was innocent or pure, and he has become anything but innocent or pure in the eyes of the people. Those that are going to be opposing Jesus in the story are the religious leaders of the day, the religious of the day. And so Zacchaeus is here. He is a wealthy man. Here's what we need to know about a tax collector. We're going to look at one more of these later on in uh, this series, likely. And, uh, but, but here's what you know about tax collectors. Tax collectors had a great deal of reign um, and freedom from uh, uh, Rome at this time. And so they could charge. And so some of their money was legitimate money. It was money that was uh, collected under uh, right uh, uh, terms, etc. But some of it was they just got as much as they could because there was really no regulation on them. And so a lot of their money that they got was received based on the fact they could tax you for whatever they wanted to tax you for. If they were in the mood to tax you because you were walking on the left side of the street, they could tax you. If they didn't like the color of your hair, they could tax you. And there was really nothing that you could do about it. So tax collectors had gained this reputation. Here's the other thing, though. When a tax collector came from within the people of God and was serving the enemy in the process, they became even more ostracized, more hated. Now, is there anyone in the room who just says, man, my favorite organization in America is the IRS? I just love it. In fact, I really wish that we would have higher taxes. That would be awesome. Nobody here thinks that. Now, if you work for the IRS, I promise you, I don't have anything against you. Um, you just probably should get another job. Just kidding. Just kidding. We need godly people in the IRS as well. This tax collector is one that is now, he is on the outsides of the religious community. He has not been embraced by anyone inside the religious community. And even though he grew up hearing about the faith, learning about the faith, was even named by his parents as pure, uh, uh, this guy has not been able to serve. He's not been able to worship in quite some time, I assure you. And so it tells us that he wants to see Jesus. It tells us that he goes on the offense and he begins seeking for a way to find Jesus. Now, the scripture doesn't tell us, but I think the most likely scenario is that he has heard what has taken place previous to this. Likely word has caught him. There's been a person that's been raised from the dead earlier here. I think he has heard what it is that Jesus has done and he is intrigued by this, uh, by, by this rabbi, this teacher that is unlike any other excuse me, other teacher that he is aware of. And so he wants to see Jesus. There are two problems with him seeing Jesus. Number one, there is a very large crowd. And number two, he is a very small man. And so as the crowd gathers and and begins to swarm around, he has no view whatsoever. Being undeterred, though, he decides to go and to climb up physically, grown man, climb up into a tree just so that he can get a better view of this dude called Jesus. And so he climbs. He gets up and he sees Jesus. More importantly, as he is walking along, as he's running ahead, climbing over there, Jesus, it says, came to the place where he was and he, Jesus, looked up. Now, just a quick question. Would this man have ever been noticed if Jesus would have been a typical religious man? If Jesus hadn't had his eyes up looking for someone 
who was looking for something, then I don't know that this man would have been noticed by Jesus. Do you know what has been very effective in America since World War II up until probably the early to mid-90s? Is building churches for people who are looking for churches. That was very effective. The model had been built for quite some time in America on those that were looking for a church. We want to build a church, not a physical building, a people. We want to build a people who are really good at capturing other people who are looking for other Christians. Guess what's happening in America in 2023? What's happening in Tallahassee in 2023? People are looking for churches. That percentage of the population is shrinking dramatically. People are looking, though, every day for something. They are looking for something that will bring satisfaction. I will tell you up here on the northeast corner in which we serve, there are lots of people who have, have worked really hard and have earned rightfully the money that they have for them. And they have spent and, and they have built and they have done everything they can. They've, they've vacated. They've, they've done all the things that they know to do and they still have found it's not been enough. And they're looking for something. And they're going to get unnoticed as long as the church continues to look for people who are looking for a church. But if we look for people who are looking for something, we are going to find that the harvest is plentiful. So Jesus looks up and he sees this wealthy man, this one who has made his way partly in, in very good, healthy, righteous ways, and then partly in some unrighteous ways as well. And then Jesus has the audacity to look up at him, and he calls him by name. Now, we don't know how Jesus knew his name. Maybe this is one of the God tricks that he pulled. Maybe this is he heard the guy's name. I don't know. But he looks up and he says, Zacchaeus, I have to be with you today. Now, I would imagine he said it with a grin, unlike Prozac, flannel graph Jesus. But I don't know, but, but he says it there with, certainly with intensity. I must be with you. He will not be deterred from spending time with this notorious sinner. He, notice he says, Zacchaeus, a hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house. Now, look at the response. I love this of Zacchaeus. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. Now, have you taken note so far of the verbs that have been used, the action words that have been used for Zacchaeus in this story? Just the actions that he's taking place. He's seeking, he ran, he climbed up, he hurried, he climbed down, he received. There'll be two more that'll come at the end of the story. But Zacchaeus hears from Jesus. He comes down. Now, at this moment, the crowd goes into applause. They say, this is the greatest thing. Isn't it wonderful to see someone who has previously taken advantage of other people now coming in contact with Jesus and his life is going to be radically transformed? This is a great moment. We should get a baptismal. We should celebrate. We should put a video on the screen. This is Awesome. Is that what the crowd did? The crowd, according to the story here, 
grumbles. Now notice she doesn't even mention who the people are. When they saw it, they all grumbled. Who is they? It's them. It's those that just don't like the fact that Jesus changes radically people from the inside out. Because those who are looking down can't keep looking down at others when they've been brought up by Jesus. And so how am I going to keep my place of looking down on others? I can measure my performance by how bad that they are. How am I going to do that if Jesus keeps changing people? See, the religious look down. They look within. They, they just don't look up and look out towards others. There's not a heart of compassion here for this guy. There's no partying that's going on with the angels in heaven. There's this doggone it. Have you ever found yourself being disappointed when somebody changes? Almost like I couldn't keep the grudge. I couldn't hold it against them. I wish I could tell you I've never once in my lifetime done that. But I have. They grumbled. He has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Can you believe Sally is hanging out with her? Can you believe that Fred is with him this weekend? The people that he is associating with, my goodness. Now, what I'm not saying is that there is never a time to, to separate ourselves. I, um, I, uh, I don't think it would be a wise idea for you to say, today, I'm going to go hang out in a, in a drug house. Or I don't think it would be a good idea for a guy to say, I think that my ministry today is going to be by going to a strip club. I'm not saying that there's never a time in which we should separate for, for good, right. I'm saying that Jesus is going to the man's house and people are upset that he's associating in any way, shape, or form. The fact that Jesus does not spit in this man's direction, remove himself from the presence, causes the religious to get into an uproar. Now, the first seven verses are what takes place in the outside the next three verses are what take place inside. We don't know how much time passes between verse 7 and 8, but it's not very likely that it's immediate. It's likely that Jesus has gone into the home of this man, spent some time, they've talked. Jesus has expounded on the scriptures and let him know. Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, to Jesus, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. We have every reason to believe that Jesus probably had some level of teaching on this principle or this man was so well-versed because his conscience was bothering him so badly that he understood the maximum penalty of the law. The maximum penalty of defrauding someone would have been this measure right here. And this guy is willing to go to the maximum place in order to do what's right. It is evidence that his heart has been changed. His actions do not usher in salvation. It is evidence that this man has been changed um, in the process. So Jesus sums it all up with this last verse. He says, today salvation has come 
uh, into this house. He is also a son of Abraham. And then he says, for the son of man came to seek and to save that which was lost. This is the grand principle for you and me. While we can't do the saving, we are called to join Jesus to go on the love offensive. And we are called not to look down and to ignore, but we are called actually to look up and to see whom it is that God might bring his salvation to. So just a challenge to all of us. We are called to be the offensive battering ram of the church. We'll teach this uh, in another couple of weeks, but Jesus says, um, uh, my church, I'm going to build it. And it says the defensive gates of hell will not be able to resist the offensive battering ram of the church. That's what we're called to do. We're not called to make the earth a more moral place. We're not called to, to bring more law and, and, and more order, etc. That's not our primary goal. What we're called to do is to get people connected to the person of Jesus and God takes care of their hearts. He does the transforming. He does all the changing. I bet right now you have a couple of folks in mind. It may be family. It may be friends. It may be coworkers. But I bet you have some folks in mind right now. And I want to challenge you, thinking about folks in a way that would say, how can I pray? And how can I pray in such a manner that God would use me in the process to help bring Jesus to this individual? I don't know how I'll do it. I just want to challenge us to pray.